You are listening to episode five of Sound and Process. I'm Dan Dirks. Thank you so much for joining me. Sound and Process is an exploration of the Artists of Lines, the forum for Eurorack module and instrument maker Monome. Special support for this episode came from generous donations made by Jason Wemoner, Evan Hartzell, Thorsten Veith, Nick Sanborn, Rodrigo Constanzo, Brian Anderson, Robert Pitts, and Brian Crabtree. To become a sustaining donor, please check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash sound and process and get early access to new episodes, supplemental research, and cassette copies of future conversations. All right, I am so excited to be kicking off 2017 with Marcus Fisher. Marcus has been a staple figure in modern ambient music for the better part of the last decade. His music is an ocean of tape loops, baritone guitar, and modular synthesis. His debut solo album, Monocoastal, was released in 2010 and brought international attention to his work. Since then, he has partnered with several collaborators, most recently Taylor Dupree, with whom Fisher released Twine in 2015. In just a few days, Marcus will actually be heading down to Florida for a month and a half long residency with the Rauschenberg Foundation. It's kind of insane. So we'll begin our conversation on that topic. Thank you so much for joining us. So how did you get that opportunity? Um, I was on vacation last uh, spring. It was like spring break. And uh, got a email from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation saying that I've been invited to be an artist in residence for their residency program in Captiva, Florida. And I had been aware of um, that residency program because uh, I know the artists Stephen Vitiello and Taylor Dupree did a residency there. And they wound up putting out a beautiful album called Captiva. Um which is the name of the island where the it used to be Rauschenberg's um, living space and working space. And so I know that the two of them had done it, but I didn't apply for it or anything. And it's, it's one of those things that um, somebody nominates you and then a committee awards you the residency. So they kind of sent me an email asking if I was interested and that was a really pleasant surprise. And immediately my wife was like, you have to do it. Like, that's great. And so um, we went through the whole back and forth about picking a um, time period. And so I'm going to start that on January 9th and go until February 17th. So six weeks away from Portland and away from my family and everything. So yeah, I'm a little bit nervous, but also excited and hopeful that it'll be a good creative time. So you were able to pick the period in which you want to spend that time? Yeah, they had um, a bunch of different blocks throughout the year in five or six week increments, you know, starting in January and going through um, the end of the year. So um, I kind of looked at the calendar, we kind of figured it out. And like, I do freelance work. And usually January is uh, relatively slow. So I was like, Oh, that'd be a good time to get away and also a colder darker time in portland so being in florida on the on the gulf coast sounds all right for january so and then what resources do you have there oh it's amazing so like robert rauschenberg was quite a polymath like his art was a combination of sculpture and painting and printmaking and all kinds of things so 
he had pretty deep interests. So his studios really reflect that in the location. So there's like a, you know, beautiful open space for painting or um, printmaking. There's like a metal fabrication studio and a ceramic studio. There's a music studio and like just like it's like 20 acres and a bunch of different little buildings all spread out. So it'll be interesting. And they don't have any expectations of the artists in residence. So um, I can kind of go there and work on whatever. So it should be kind of interesting. So are you then going to use that as an opportunity to focus on any one thing? Or are you kind of going to go in and, and just see what takes you? I initially, I mean, I, I'll definitely, I want to focus on music. I have a couple projects in mind as far as that goes. And one of which is trying to wrap up um, an album for 12K. Um, and Taylor Dupree from 12K has been infinitely patient with um uh, me being like, you know, many years behind on delivering him another solo album. So I really want to try to finish that. And then I also want to work on some new things and, um, try to work with on some more like kind of, uh, sound art pieces that could be maybe, um, turned into an installation or some work like that. So yeah, I'm, hopeful that I'll be able to get to a number of things like it's six weeks is a long time but um yeah yeah so I just I'm kind of trying to wrap my head around like try to strike a balance between the things that I want to get done and then being open to whatever happens while I'm there too so Feel like so much of your work has been so heavily influenced by both uh, environment and physical space. Yeah, um, I feel like the yeah environment and physical space are definitely things that really resonate with me in my creative process. Like I, yeah, it's it being in a space and being inspired by that space, or even the memory of you know, a space or a place or a time period um, that I'm really super interested in how um, your brain kind of uh, fills in the missing pieces. Right. Like if you create like a piece of music that could be layered and intricate and there's, you know, different sounds kind of moving around and you can kind of focus on one thing or another thing, but maybe not too many things at once and your your brain kind of fills in the empty space like bits of melody and finding patterns and like those kind of things really interest me and it usually is uh, using either a place or a time period or a theme as kind of a jumping off point like the record that I've been trying to finish for 12k I've kind of painted myself into a corner with that one because I have <laughs> a very specific theme in mind and um kind of everything that I've been doing that hasn't fallen into that theme, I've kind of pushed it aside or jettisoned it. And so I kind of feel like maybe I've become a little too rigid with those kind of ideas and I just need to let it flow a little bit more. <laughs> but um, 
the album Monocoastal that I did for 12K, it really had to do with kind of the West Coast and specifically the Pacific Northwest. And it kind of has this foggy, sort of slow, um, dreary sort of uh, haze over it. And a lot of like tape hiss and things coming in and out. And I feel like that was a pretty successful uh, attempt at trying to bring um, a physical space into um, an album format. I had done it a little bit in single tracks here and there, but um, I feel like as a whole, um, it worked pretty well with that. guess then that idea does extend it seems into the use of physical space as you know not to be so uh, esoteric but you know the use of a physical space as an instrument like what you did with two rooms um yeah unrecognizable now and also to the the mythology behind twine uh that that story about how you know you and taylor just listening to this one tape loop uh and it has so much to do with the space that you're in and, and the time in which you're there yeah, uh, and that definitely. influencing as a jumping off point. Yeah, definitely. Um, two rooms was a great example of that because we, so Matt Jones and I, who um, do unrecognizable now, uh, we have this space in downtown Portland. It's in the basement of an office building and uh, Matt rents out this um, room and there are these two like kind of long hallways that lead up to the room and the bathroom for the building that we have access to is like on the third or fifth floor or something so if when you leave to go use the bathroom and you come back down the hallway the hallway just has a great kind of echoing cavernous kind of feel and so coming back into the space when someone else is playing music um in that practice space, uh, it just had such a great sound. And so we would go down there all the time just to play music. And we kind of got the idea where we would um, put room mics out, but not in the room we were playing in, just down the two hallways <laughs> to try to capture that space. And um, yes, yeah, so we did it and just had kind of one long uh, improvised session that we wind up wound up chopping up a little bit, but it was all just came from these two mics, um, you know, well out of the space and didn't use any uh, artificial reverb or anything, just kind of use the space uh, for what it was. And we were kind of surprised by the results. Like, we're like, wow, that really worked. Like, (laughs) it could have just (laughs) sounded like total mush and garbage, but we kind of, uh, yeah, we were like, oh, wow, you you know, we actually got it working and it, it sounded good. So we kind of like, had those recordings for a while and didn't really do anything with them. And then um, Simon Scott, uh, who's another great artist, he's on 12K and Touch and plays drums and uh, Slow Dive, which is one of my favorite groups from way back when and present day. Um, He offered to release it on his label, Kesh. So um, we did that and I letterpressed some sleeves for the covers and um just did a run of those and it was it's probably one of my favorite 
things that I can still listen to that wasn't like, because um, it sort of feels like I was there, but I didn't, uh, I wasn't like super um, complicit in creating it because <laughs> like I wasn't really hearing it the same way while it was happening. So it's like, it's almost sure. like the space was the third collaborator. There was myself, Matt Jones, and then the basement of the Board of Trade building in downtown Portland. <laughs> <laughs> Should have been credited in the in the liner notes, I guess. But yeah, and then Twine was a great one because uh, Taylor and I have been collaborating for a number of years, and he came out west to play the last installment of the Substrata Festival in Seattle. And so mm. he performed and I did some live video um, projection work for him. And then he came back to Portland and we wound up um, just playing in my studio, working on a couple different things. And we were both pretty tired one night and we had a tape loop going and then it was just running and we were both kind of zoned out and then just sort of realized that that was the the piece. That's what we should work on. And so we wound up. Um, just creating like it was really simple idea. It was just like two tape loops with one instrument each um, of, you know, loops of various lengths um, playing together. And we recorded them from the built in speakers on the Nagra um, tape mm-hmm. recorder. And that was it. You know, they just ran and he took the recordings back to his studio in Pound Ridge and edited, you know, the start and the end and did some light mastering to it. And that was it. That was the album. And it's, we were kind of like, either people are going to really get this or they're going to really hate it because it's, (laughs) I mean, it's super repetitive and it it, it just is what it is. It's like, you know, maybe a 10 second or 20 second loop, you know, two different ones that just runs for five to seven minutes or something. And yeah, I think we were really surprised that people, um, reacted so well to it and we're we're really into it so that was cool well i think that the the word that was associated most with that in people's reaction was um, restraint. Uh, and that balances also really well with a uh, certain lushness too that develops over time throughout that album. And I feel like so much of your work, it seems like there are very few moving parts at play, but everything finds its voice and fills out. So how do you in composing, um, how do you approach that balance? And, and, and how do you even know when a piece has enough? Well, that's, it's, that's super interesting because um, I was just telling somebody about this the other day that, so my live music approach is completely different than my um, recording approach. And mm. so my improvised like live music is all it's an additive process and my um, recording and, um, you know, editing and mixing, it's completely subtractive. And like, it's funny because like, so all of my 
live performances start with nothing. Like I, I don't, I try not to prepare like much material ahead of time. So I'll just kind of build up beds of sound from the things that I bring with me, like, you know, a guitar or, you know, some objects and you want looping and creating layers and building up and taking things back down and doing some mixing on the fly. And then I do the same thing basically for recording live for recording for um, album material but then I take everything and just keep cutting away more and more and more and more and more until there's like mm. only, the only thing that's left is what I think is essential for being there. So it's it's um, yeah, it's sort of laborious because <laughs> I wind up um, like I'll play back. I'll start with like a longer, like maybe 20 or 30 minute improvised piece. And then I just keep cutting away, cutting away until it's like you know, six, seven minutes long. And I basically will listen until something bothers me. And then I remove that thing that bothers me. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, yeah. And like, I'll wind up like falling asleep on the floor of my studio with my headphones on because like, I've just been like listening to this, you know, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, getting it shorter and shorter. Um, you know, until and then if something wakes me up, <laughs> then I'm like, "What was that thing?" I'll back it up. Okay, okay, that thing has to go. And like, I just wind up. <laughs> and it's not that I'm looking for things that like are jarring or that clash that need to to get kicked out, but like um, just some something that just doesn't feel right. And so, um, yeah, it's a sort of stupid and long process, but it seems to work. I don't know. Um, other than the fact that I haven't finished this um, solo record in several years. So. Sure. <laughs> yeah, like I try not to add anything else. Like after I, I'll record, you know, what I'm, what the piece is going to be. And then I usually don't go back and overdub anything else. Like I just wind up um, cutting and cutting and cutting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my, um, the recordings wind up looking like a, quite a jumble, like a puzzle piece together with, crossfades and weird everything so it's it actually takes a lot of effort for it to sound so um minimal and restrained with a lot of space so sometimes i think it's kind of silly but i still it's like what the way i'm used to working at this point um Mm. but yeah that was what was kind of um a little bit freeing about putting out that uh live cd last year was that like those that was much more representational like if you came out to a performance like that's basically what you would get was was those pieces on public works something along those lines and they are are still restrained but um it's a bit messier uh, as far as like Mm. you know a lot of peaky resonant frequencies (laughs) or (laughs) everything being really mid-range or like something but
even just the the six year snapshot that I can tell just by pulling pictures online. Um, it, it seems that your gear has kind of changed pretty dramatically from when you first started uh, with Matt to now, where you're incorporating, you know, Euro Rack. Um, how has that process been for you, um, evolving what tools uh, will get you closest to what you're looking for? It's sort of one of those things that. So for my um, live work, I try to not keep anything the same for very long. So what I wind up doing mostly is creating systems um, to improvise within. So, you know, my, for, I mean, for quite a few years, it was different configurations of pedals and tape recorders. And um, so I knew that within this system, within these tools, I could play that thing like an instrument in itself. And then when I started incorporating modular, that um, really felt like an extension of that pedal setup. You know, like this is a filter, this is a delay, you know, Mm. but it still was just systems for um, recording audio and manipulating it. And so I, I think that it, it, winds up just being like the fact that I don't want to repeat the same thing over and over again. Like I not only, I think, I think it was mostly that I, it, to keep it interesting for myself. Cause I don't think that anyone who comes out to a show cares if I use the same thing more than once, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just one of those things. Like I, I just like changing it up. So for like unrecognizable now, it's always been primarily like guitar based with electronics as like to loop or to manipulate the sound. And um, for like my solo performances, it's, I mean, sometimes it's, there's no guitar. Sometimes like I'll use acoustic instruments or um, bowed bells and things. So I, that kind of changes all the time. But um yeah, I guess I I like trying to keep it constantly changing and maybe it kind of prevents me from getting too comfortable and so I think that that's for improvising, I feel like that it's kind of helpful to like have kind of moving target a little bit so I'm not like just falling into the same ambient music tropes, I guess. <laughs> I know. Like I could do like volume pedal and guitar and delay pedal stuff like forever and it would be beautiful, but I think that I would get bored of that. So because if you are doing more live stuff currently and and that system needs to be changing in order to keep you engaged in order to keep you um motivated. Uh I'd imagine it's kind of hard then to nail down recorded output yeah i mean the recording stuff is kind of different and i feel like the the main thing that's been like difficult with this album that i'm trying to finish it's like i think i've just like built it up too much in my head as far as like something that i need to um that needs to be something meaningful and maybe that was just the wrong approach like so i um, decided 
years ago that the theme was going to be um, loss. Like after my father passed away and my grandfather, I just thought that that was a really good thing to try to tackle in a sound format. And I think that it was a really, um, really bad idea, actually. <laughs> but but I am determined to see it through. So a lot of times I thought, well, maybe I should just put that on the shelf and focus on something different for now. But then I just keep coming back to it and chipping away. And I, I've been busy like doing other things too. So it's been a little bit slow process on that front. But I feel like collaborations have been going really well while I've been a little bit more stagnant on the solo recording front. So I think it has to do with that same same topic. So <laughs> like each person that you're working with has a specific set of tools that you like to use. Taylor uh, was, you know, the the tape loops. Um, Matt, like you just said, is is guitar and electronics. Um, do you find that each one of those uh, partnerships tends to breed a different system? Yeah, I, I think I, I approach it the same as far as picking a set of tools and then trying to use those tools within that framework. So um, I don't know, in a way, it's sort of freeing to have limitations, if that makes sense. Like you, mm. I feel like we live in such a interesting time where we basically don't have any limitations as far as our tools go. If we're in the digital realm, you know, we can kind of do whatever we want to with with without much and. So I feel like that's part of like why I lock down these systems with limitations to kind of work within. So, um, I mean, the ultimate is probably twine, you know, that we limited ourselves to primarily acoustic instruments with those tape loops, mm. you know, a pretty limited palette. And then you were kind of free to work within that realm. And that was, it really felt supernatural. Um, not supernatural, but very natural. Um, or like the work that I've done with um, Ted, uh, the Ure. Uh, he and I have collaborated quite a bit through the years. And, you know, he uses a cello with um, looping devices and um, some custom PD stuff. And then I'll wind up usually playing um, regular guitar instead of the baritone guitar so that it's not too close um to the cello as far as frequency range goes but um within those you know i feel like i've he's got his frequency range and i have my frequency range and we kind of work um together there because like the cello fills up a lot of space pretty quickly and so yeah i i kind of feel like it's good on the front end to like kind of define where you sit a little bit and then from there, you can kind of just enjoy the process. Yeah. Um, Taylor and I, at one point, got together and and sort of did some recording, and our equipment was maybe a little too similar, and it sort of <laughs> just wound up sounding like it was beautiful and floaty and, you know, very pleasant, but there were, maybe it was a little too samey, and so 
we never really did anything with those recordings. Like there's still a possibility that, you know, we'll do something with them in the future, but I feel it's good to have some sort of contrast at least so that each of the members of the collaboration have, you know, their own timbral voice at least. Mm. And I feel like that was um, something that really worked as far as the album between. So that was like um, myself and Taylor, Simon Scott, and then um, Corey Fuller and um, Tomo from Iloha. So we recorded that. It was a live thing that we did in Japan. And so it's like you have five people using a lot of restraint and, you know, each with their own um, kind of sound palette contributing to this piece. And I feel like it it really worked um, pretty well, even though like it had the potential to be really muddy and sort of disastrous if everyone just kind of went all in. Yeah, that one wound up. As far as collaborations go, that's probably the one that I'm the most pleased with as far as, um, you know, this uh, something that that it was improvised, but sounds like it could have been composed. Right. And at that point, we had all been kind of on tour together for several nights and sort of knew um, where everyone sat. And then we did this, you know, five person live improv and that it wound up um, I think surprising us all as far as how mm. <laughs> um, how the results turned out so. it seems like you're very driven to collaborate with others and to, to merge processes and merge systems Maybe it's because I kind of came up playing in like uh, in bands and stuff like it, it feels very natural and um, it's it sort of um, gives you a definite a different kind of uh, personal energy than it is when you're playing by yourself. So I, I really enjoy the collaborative process and I really enjoy listening and using, you know, the those skills as an improviser to kind of find your space within um a group and it's it's something that's like always been pretty important to me matt jones and i were getting together with different groups of people on sunday mornings in that space where we recorded um two rooms and we jokingly referred it to the church of drone (laughs) because sunday morning we'd get coffee go down to that space and like uh, just kind of play till about noon and so we'd have different people coming by like drummers and Ted would come by with his cello and it was all all different groups and that was just pretty nice to like get together and have coffee and talk for a bit and then just like get into this um music zone and you know we wouldn't speak to one another again till like you know we went up to when we had to finally start paying the the parking meters or something (laughs) but um yeah, I feel like that was really good practice as far as um, improvising and, and collaborating goes. So Yeah. I don't know. I feel like when everybody brings something different to the table, like you can surprise yourself a little more than when you're playing on your own. Like you kind of know what you're going to do when you play by yourself. And it's not nearly as exciting as when somebody forces you into some other area that um, where real discoveries are made. So. It's 
a bit more rewarding, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you feel like is part of your worldview or even just daily practice as a human being that lends you better toward collaboration? Because the way that you speak about it is very kind of, uh, it seems integral to the way that you view just relationships, that give and take, that sharing of space and sharing of uh, voice even. So I'm just, I'm interested in how you arrived or if you don't, if you haven't given it any thought, that's okay too. But um, I'm interested if there is anything that you can point to as, as helping to make that easy to do for you. Yeah. I I mean, I feel like it's, it's just part of, um, I think it's just like how I started um, really engaging with music was in a, in a kind of community space like we like I I grew up in Southern California going to like you know punk rock shows and really um run down and CD kind of spots and it was very like DIY like DIY culture is something that really has been a part of my life um since a pretty young age and like as a late teen and early 20s, I was living in Olympia, Washington, um, which is sort of like a little epicenter of like independent culture in a lot of ways in the 1990s. And, you know, it was like sharing a house with different people and like uh, a certain point, everyone that I lived with played music and we'd, you know, play music together. And, and that's the way that I learned music is with other people rather than by myself. So I didn't like just like sit down with a guitar or with a bass and try to like, you know, really figure this thing out. Like I I started by playing with friends and like, you know, knowing nothing about music, but getting together, you know, in a garage and just like making noise. (laughs) um, So I really enjoy just seeing what people bring to the table. And so in that way, like, yeah, collaborative music making has it it just feels right and feels natural and like Mm. i definitely know that like especially a lot of us um as we get older don't necessarily have the time to commit to like playing in proper bands or things like that but like you know one-off collaborations or even like working on a record together you know in our spare time um feels really good like it scratches that itch that I think that um, a lot of us might have for you know to to play in groups and um, Mm. yeah I'm looking forward to a couple different collaborations Um, I'm gonna try to start something with um, Paul Dickow who he plays music under the name Strategy and he and I have collaborated on some live performances in the past but he had the idea to start a trio, like an improvised music trio, electronics, um, with myself and Bill Selman, who does um, some really beautiful modular work. So um, Paul, while he does do ambient work too, he is primarily like he does a lot of beat-driven um, stuff, like of all different kinds. Some of it's like dub some of its techno and so it'll really be interesting to play in a group like that where we um you know maybe we'll have a little bit more defined roles but it's definitely going to be out of my comfort zone (laughs) as far as the like 
you know, I don't think that it's going to be just like droney, floaty, beautiful music. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then um, Rebecca Gates, um, she sang in the group The Spinanes. Mm. Um, they were on Sub Pop in the 1990s, and she has a um, another band now. But she and I have been talking about collaborating for a long time. So hopefully that's going to happen next year. And she has really beautiful vocals and super talented guitar player. And so we'll see how that goes, too. Because she has a definite interest in sound art. Um, and yeah, unknown direction cool. at this point. But I think that it could be um, really you know different from the stuff that I've been doing. When you've been playing live, it's all improvised. Yeah. Uh So what are the current pieces that uh, are most shiny to you right now in your setup? Um, I just got one of those ER301 sound computer modules. Oh, man. And um, that thing is insane. I mean, the name sound computer is definitely... um, accurate that thing is pretty amazing and then when brian and kelly came to play in portland last month um yeah they were kind enough to leave their arc with me uh after our performance and that is just an amazing you know not only amazing piece of design but also a very inspiring um way to interact with something that can be kind of as clinical as the modular synth. And so um, just using that in conjunction with other pieces has definitely opened up um, a much more expressive um, way of interacting with it. And yeah, I'm just like constantly finding new applications for the arc in my setup and it's it feels like it was like a missing piece of the puzzle (laughs) for sure and i had an arc too like the non-push button one and um while it was a beautiful design object and like super fun to use at the time when i had it i just didn't gel with it as as well as this um new one and i think it was just mainly because i got it after I had pretty much quit using um, a computer for live performance. And so as a studio tool, it was really fun, but um, I just didn't interact with it the same way that I am with it inserted into the modular workflow. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty incredible. And then that 301 makes me really um, excited as far as uh, more audio recording and um mangling opportunities <laughs> in the modular so i've been using uh electron octatrack um for live stuff for all, i think almost two years now and it's so funny because i use it just for um live looping and then for playback of um field recordings ah, cool. <laughs> and i i don't 
I never press play on the thing and I never like, <laughs> um, yeah, I never do any sequencing with it. I'm just only using it for, um, for those two applications. And so that, um, ER301 kind of takes the place of the Octatrack in my setup. Like I'm not ready to give up the Octatrack yet, but, um, yeah. it's, it, Octatrack is definitely better at some things, but I mean the, that ER301 is still in its infancy as far as the software goes. So, right. Um, yeah, we'll see. But yeah, it's. I think it's always funny that when people see me using the Octatrack <laughs> and then there's just like, <laughs> yeah, there's like nothing beat related or tempo synced coming out of it. It's, it's right, kind, right. Of, kind of a funny thing. What was the decision to move away from the computer? Um, a lot of it had to do with the physical control. Like I tried out a bunch of different, um, MIDI controllers and things like that, like mapping them to functions and it just never felt natural to, um, perform with the computer. And I, Mm. I think I was like trying to sort of use it just because it was the best, um, like it offered the best options at the time. And, um, then, I mean, it's, I think it's been since like maybe 2008 was the last time or 2009 maybe was the last time I used a computer for live performance. So it's been a while and I haven't really looked back. Like sometimes I'm like, Oh, it'd be so much easier as far as like lugging stuff around. (laughs) Like, (laughs) uh, yeah, a MacBook air is, so much lighter than a you know a, a road case full of pedals and a you know big sure. power supply and everything but um i started like i was using a lot of pedals plus the computer and you know kind of using a bunch of different tools that way and i think that when i got a the electroharmonics 2880 um it's like a four track looper mm-hmm then I kind of didn't need the computer anymore, like after that point. So, and I was, since I was always starting with something empty to begin with, like I wasn't like playing back pre-recorded sounds. Like I just didn't need, um, yeah, the computer didn't offer that much more as far as that went, since I was like using all the pedals and then just using the computer to loop. Right. And so then after I got the, the 28, 2880 and then I, the, time factor later on like it just seemed less and less necessary and then it's sort of like more interesting i think for um people coming out to watch live performance that they can see like how i'm building up sound right in front of their faces like rather than it being like this hidden process behind the screen um right you know they can see that okay i'm i recorded that bell or like these you know ebos are on this harp thing and it's making that now um you know now the sound is continuing in a loop after i um remove the ebos or now oh i'm playing guitar and you can you know i don't know it it sort of took the i think it it made it a little less um mysterious and (laughs) more (laughs) interesting for the viewer i don't know at least that's what people say so i'll have to believe them um yeah, I don't know. It just it just feels more natural, I think, than um, clicking and mousing around. 
even if you are then using anything pre-recorded on uh thinking back on the the like 35 foot tape loops yeah that, that you used <laughs> like you know if you're gonna have pre-recorded stuff i guess that's probably the most visually captivating way to do it yeah so that one that i did um with the two yeah 35 foot long loops um one was to a Fostex 8 track that I did have pre-recorded material on that I was um, diffusing using the mixer. And then the other tape loop was a two track um, from a TIAC stereo machine. And that was all live. Um, I was playing um, guitar into that one and then also dispersing it among the six speakers. So um, yeah, that was um, visually um pretty awesome it just it was definitely like a giant sculpture with move, a lot of moving parts and a lot of variability but it was it was pretty funny because at that show um it was yeah so it was there's an event called six that i helped put on in portland that's it's a six speaker surround sound event and so different people um you know present work for the sound system in a physical space. And um, uh, Darwin Gross, who does a lot of stuff for like Cycling 74 and a couple other people were playing as an ensemble. And a lot of them, you know, old timers who've seen a lot and done a lot, um, they stood back and looked at my <laughs> giant tape loop setup <laughs> and shook their heads and were like, it's not gonna work. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? They're just like, yeah, I've seen a lot in my day. It's this isn't this isn't gonna work. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then it it did work, and it wound up sounding like pretty fantastic in the space. And like uh, afterwards, those guys were <laughs> were like, "Yeah, you pulled it off. Good job." You know, <laughs> it was it was just sort of funny to have the um, a, a disapproving um, glance from. <laughs> <laughs> from these guys who have like you know seen a lot and done a lot but then to have them acknowledge the fact that <laughs> i was able to pull it off that was pretty good something that i'm i'm trying to grapple with is the idea of you know how much visual stimulation helps an audience to uh, be in that place of cool I'm, 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 I'm interested not like completely shut out because I don't understand yeah um, I feel like visuals um, whether it's something projected or it's the um, sound to visual connection that people get from a performance like seeing somebody uh, creating the sounds or making um you know making something happen right in front of them i i don't think it's necessary but i feel like it is more engaging um for people experiencing like a live performance like i i think especially with modular a lot of modular music you know you go to see somebody perform and it's just like you know, somebody hunched, but I mean, it's basically the equivalent of somebody hunched behind a laptop right. and a bunch of sound is coming out and there's like a glow of light on their face. 
And I feel like it's basically the same thing at this point with modular, except there's tangles of wires and more flashing lights. But um, <laughs> it's I think it's really hard for anyone to see like how what they're watching relates to the sound. Like ex- I, I would say maybe um, there's a guy, Derek uh, Basic, who um, he was in Portland for a while and he's, you know, has a bunch of Internet videos of him doing amazing finger drumming stuff but like i feel like his live performance with his modules like it's more physical than most that i've seen and so it's more engaging Mm -hmm. but um otherwise i think it could be i think it's hard for for the audience and there's especially when there's so much going on there's not as much for them to latch on to it's at least that's for me like i i love that like so many people are making experimental weird music um like it it definitely warms my heart in some way but it is i mean it's it's different and it's and it's challenging you know and it's like what what's the difference between somebody who's been like chipping away at this stuff for years and somebody who you know just bought a complete make noise shared system and is plugging together with the same tools you know it's like i don't know it's it's hard like and then I think that for some listeners can hear the difference and other people can't, you know? Well, I think that the the idea of, yeah, like going back to restraint or um, avoiding overcrafting. Right, um, yeah. Those are cues, you know, that, that somebody understands the system that they're working with and um, is coaxing something out rather than just being like, all right, well, I don't know, patch that there and we'll see what happens. Totally. Um, which is still integral to the process, but right. um, it feels like there's more um, intention on the best iterations of it. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like when it comes down to it, for me, music still needs to be musical um, for me to really feel mm. a connection to it. And like... um. It doesn't, and that doesn't mean it has to be like melody or rhythm or anything, but there has just has to be that sort of, you know, restraint in an era where we have so many um, tools and like you got to use those tools thoughtfully and um, with, with intent. And I think yeah. that that's the stuff that's going to rise to the top. You've been involved with uh, Monom using uh, the grid and being a part of the uh, the community um, from what looks like pretty close to the beginning. Uh, I just I wanted your long view on it. Yeah, I like I remember seeing the videos of the 40H and just being like, oh my god, this thing seems incredible, you know. And then like when they started teasing the the walnut first generation walnut ones i was just like oh my god this is awesome and like i showed you know some of the videos to my wife and the photos and she was just like oh well you know (laughs) but um christmas one year um i opened the box from her and inside was a picture of a monom 128 
walnut edition. And I was like, what? And she got on. This was when they were selling out within minutes. Like it was the very first run of the 128. And she like at work, you know, camped out. Waited for the them to go on sale and jumped on it. And I think she wound up getting getting like number um, like eighty nine or something like that. Like it was wow. they only made a run of a hundred. Got right in under the wire and completely surprised me by getting me a one twenty eight. And I just like fell in love with the thing. It was like that was like something that made um, performing with the computer more enjoyable. And I wound up building a 40H after that. So I had um, the 128 and the 40H um, running pages. Um, that app that like let you like have a bunch of nested applications. And um, mm-hmm. that was like the center of my um, performance rig for like maybe two years, a year or two. And um, it was, yeah, it was awesome. And really really cool and then um yeah being involved in the community i was super inspired by just like how fantastic and supportive so many of the uh, members of that community were and i had been part of a online like music community before that called em411 and it was like um i mean this is like early 2000s and like it was a you know, you could sign in and have your profile and you could post music. And I wound up meeting like a ton of really great people um, through that, like um, Ted Laderis Ure. Hmm. Um, he and I met because of that site and started, you know, he was like making like electro music at the time. And then we wound up um, collaborating, like playing a bunch of the same shows and then later collaborating and he's like such a good friend now and um a good friend of mine brian um he makes music under the name gasp he and i like met through that and like so it was like this cool thing that like i you wound up being able to like set what your city was and there was sub pages for like your city and um so yeah through events like this was like you know when performing music on a laptop was like new and kind of innovative and cool and um that community it still exists but it kind of like wound up sort of dissolving a bit and so then when i found the monom community i was really um like super excited about that like um michael felix who um he was making music under the name owner operator and he like helped trent gill do the mlrv um version he and i wound up meeting um through because of the monom forums and he was like a super inspiring guy who was starting all kinds of crazy projects and um yeah and then you know communicating with brian moore and just like finding out that there was like this amazing group of people who were just like doing stuff you know for free helping one another out like making these amazing applications and like yeah somebody like strata like uh he you know would post some application that he made and then somebody would ask oh but could it do this and he'd like it 20 minutes later he'd be like oh try this version (laughs) out you know it's just like so cool it was like it was just like unlike anything that i had experienced before as far as that like you know just openness and willingness to help out and uh it's really 
awesome to see how um, Brian and Kelly have changed, you know, their approach a little bit as far as like the branching out into these other um, devices and, and objects. And it'll be really cool to see what they wind up doing next. Like when they were here, we wound up talking about, you know, the way that Brian views like, you know, where they could be going. And like, it it just is really awesome to see that, you know, they're not just making this grid device that wound up changing the way that everybody uh, reacts with music devices, (laughs) you know I mean? Like from Launchpad or whatever, you know, it's just like they, they started this thing that, you know, fundamentally changed the way that people make, or interact with electronic music, whether they know it or not, you know, like the imitators are, are out there and they've, you know, rather than dwelling on their, this one thing, they've, they've moved on and, and started creating other, um, ways of using music. Like I wish that the, um, Olive would have taken off more, you know, that I feel like that thing could have been, um, really amazing. But it's cool to see that people... Did you own one? No, I didn't, but I lusted over one for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was really, like, hoping that it would... Uh, I'm, I'm not, like, a, a coding guy, so I was hoping that there would be some more graphical um, interface that wound up coming along. But um, I don't know. It's cool to see that there's people on the Lions forum that are wanting to jump on, like making a new you know the the diy version of it like maybe that'll wind up sparking some more interest but we'll see um but yeah i'm just like blown away by their brian and kelly's um industrial design sense too like when i went out and visited them in new york um a couple of januaries ago it was right when the most recent 128 iteration was they had yet to announce it but it was right when it was um almost done brian was showing me in the workshop how he um he couldn't find rubber feet that like were to his liking and so they were like (laughs) punching out um their own rubber feet from these (laughs) sheets of of adhesive rubber and i was just like i mean that's like dedication it was like so awesome to see that but and and also just to see the space that that they have created for themselves um, in in the Catskills, it's really fantastic and and super inspiring. Yeah, Trent's stuff is just amazing too. I'm like super blown away by his like ideas and and you know the sound of it all. It's just like so so unique. that concludes episode five of sound and process with marcus fisher you can find more of marcus's music on his website mapmap.ch please also support him directly at marcus-fisher.bandcamp.com and 12kmusic.bandcamp.com and finally come join the conversation on lines the address is llllllll.co that's eight l's.co We'd love to have you. Thank you so much for your support and for listening.